Welcome to the John Corbin Podcast. My name is John Corbin. This is a show of meaningful conversations where I sit down with artists, thinkers, and interesting people to tell stories on the themes of creativity, inspiration, community, and learning together. You can find out more about the podcast at my website, johncorbinmusic.com, and you can find me on social media. My Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles are at John Corbin Music. That's J-O-N-C-O-R-B-I-N. That's right, there is no H. And finally, we are Patreon-supported. You can find out more at patreon.com slash John Corbin. Your Patreon support is greatly appreciated. It not only allows the show to keep running, but allows it to reach for higher levels. If you want to provide monthly support, there are no tiers. You can just pay what you choose, and that gives you access to bonus material around the podcast, but also exclusive creative work like new songs, poems, essays, and a whole lot more. the John Corbin podcast. I am John Corbin here with my special guest. Who are you? Hi, I'm Kim Rattersma from Kitchener, Ontario. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Kim, what do you do? Um, Full-time work. I am a, I work in human rights in a, the school board, the local public board. That's what I get paid to do, but I do, <laughs> I do a lot of things on the side unpaid, kind of like you. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll probably talk more about those things tonight, but. Um, Kim, who do you hold close? Who do I hold close? Mm. My family, first and foremost. I have a partner. We've been married for 26 years. Oh, shoot, 27, John. And I <laughs> he always laughs at me because I never remember when or how long we've been married. I don't remember how old I am either, to be fair. <laughs> Um, and we have two teen boys, so they are, we've been living pretty tight quarters here, like most families for the past year. So I certainly hold them close, whether I want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a lot of dear friends too in Canada that I hold close. I'm from the U S but, um, cut off from my family and friends in the U S last year. So that's been a bit tough. Where, uh, where do you, where did you call home in the States? I grew up in Southern California. But then my partner and I moved to Denver um, for about a decade before we moved to Canada. We just moved to Canada eight years ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, past listeners of the podcast will know that Southern California is like a I, there's like a homing beacon there for me. I need to get there at, at some point in my life. Uh, I need to go. What did you think of Canada when you arrived eight years ago? What was that transition like? Well, that's funny because we, we actually first lived in St. Catharines which is a pretty small town. Yeah, it is. So a lot of the things that were really, and I'd always lived in big towns, so LA and then Denver um, and San Diego. So coming to a small town, there were so many differences that were actually related to being in a small town that were really foreign to me, that Hmm. not really about Canada. (laughs) Like I would see my neighbors in the grocery store and I would freak out. I'm like, oh my God. I holy cow and they would look at me like I was just what's wrong with you it's just the grocery store and I just thought that was so cool 
and just I wasn't used to that small town stuff. So that was really interesting for me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, it, it reminds me of because uh, you're in Kitchener. Uh, I went to Wilfrid Laurier oh. and my wife went to University of Waterloo. And she would when uh, we, she, you know, we'd see each other during the day and she'd tell me, you know, I saw my friend on campus. <laughs> and she's so excited because there's, you know, tens of thousands of people. I'd be like, I see my friends every day. <laughs> Very small town, Laurier. So LA and, and San Diego are connected a lot to me through music and then just, you know, my desire for good weather. What when I go, whenever that is, what do I what do I need where do I need to go? What do I need to check out in those two places? Oh, oh, I should pick one thing. You can pick many things. I am I, I'm going to be there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, the beaches are beautiful and lovely. There's nothing like standing at the ocean to make you put your life in perspective. They're just beautiful, gorgeous. I loved walking on the beach. Um, and the mountains are quite lovely, too. Like, there's there's really beautiful hikes and, like, Yosemite. Oh, that's up north. So I don't know if you're going to go up north. But there's there's gorgeous mountains throughout uh, the Los Angeles, San Diego area too. I love the outdoors. Hmm. And so going to the mountains and going to the beach, you could literally go skiing and surfing in the same day if you wanted to in Southern California, which I've heard. Yeah. And those are probably my two highlights and things I miss, but, but then you amazing. have to deal with all the traffic and all the millions and millions of people that also want to do the same thing. So unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I'm uh, someday. That's my dream. Kim, what inspires you? Hmm. Kindness. <laughs> mm. I love kindness. I, I am inspired by watching people who are unexplainably kind to other people that don't deserve it. And it inspires me greatly. That's a great answer. Thanks. I, I I have to confess, I, I recently been watching the show Ted Lasso. Love that show. Oh, my goodness. And he, to me, is like such a Jesus character, like hmm. just so beautiful and kind and gracious to people who are treat him like crap. And he's constantly misunderstood and mocked and scorned. And yet he responds with such beauty and grace and seeing the best in people like he he inspires me and and in the same way wow. the model of jesus inspires me like you know i never i never looked at it uh from that perspective so that's really interesting i think i'm going to sit with that for a second because what i notice about what well both my wife and i noticed when we watched the show is just how unusual the show is uh -huh. right and it is for this energy and driving force from this coach because, um, you know, when I watched it for the first time, I'm definitely uh, preparing for a rewatch. Uh, I saw a lot of the leadership principles okay. and said, OK, so this to me, you know, and, you know, this is my lens maybe at the moment. This, yeah, this is a show about leadership. But the energy from Lasso, what he tries to cultivate uh, in this communal space with this team that he's trying to coach. So, yeah, so much filled with grace. Yeah, right. That's a great read. Yeah. And and a and a a different way of um, embodying masculinity. Like like to me, I, I'm I'm it inspires me, and I'm hopeful for for 
you know, I, I, I think a lot about patriarchy and, and men and how men are trained to be in the world. Mm-hmm. How few role models there are for young men. I'm raising two young men. So um, for them to see a model of a man who, who has such grace and compassion and kindness is, is what really gets me going. It gets me excited and, and hopeful um, because there aren't enough models like that out there, I don't think, today. Yeah, I I would very much agree, and I think a lens that I look through is uh, through hip hop, and having years worked either in group homes or uh, at basketball coach, a basketball coach, or summer camps, or as a high school teacher, and seeing how influential hip hop has been, and is even grown even more so in uh, in its influence in in the on the culture, um, it's something that. I sit with a lot and think, well, then as a as an MC with not nearly the same size platform, what can I be doing to, um, uh, I don't know if counteract is the right word, but um, maybe provide some some alternative <laughs> modeling for what men look like. Yeah. yeah, we need more of that in the world for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the last question I have. Uh, is is the toughest. Describe yourself in one word. <laughs> oh, John, you did give me these questions ahead of time. I, I should have prepared. <laughs> and it's still tough. <laughs> and it's still tough. The first word that comes to mind, John, is silly. I don't know why that hmm. word is coming to my mind, but I think most of the people who know me best would probably know that about me like I just and this is more than one word I'm supposed to just say silly (laughs) (laughs) you can explain it if you'd like I I think also in that is like I I like to be goofy like I'm a practical jokester I I love witty um you know conversation I love I love doing the and being the unexpected I think unexpected would be another word that Mm-hmm. I hate stereotypes and I hate to fulfill stereotypes. So whatever you think about middle-aged white women, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I refuse to be in a box. <laughs> yes. And if anybody is embarrassed by like a certain piece of clothing or um, like my sister is the worst, uh, I, I pick on her the most, but if she's like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. I could never wear that. Like, you know, I'm buying that and we're going out in public and I'm wearing it because like, <laughs> I love to embarrass people. <laughs> Well, I'm sure the two young men that live in your home really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I have to be a little careful there. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's uh, that's a great. That's really great. So, do you want to know how I describe you to other people? Oh, this is always scary. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it is a scary question. It's a risky question. Thank you for thank you for taking the risk. It's interesting because we, um, we'll, you know, we'll talk in a minute about how we met. So um, our bonds are growing, um, not necessarily strong, um, but I really admire you, and which is which is why I wanted you um, on this podcast. So, th- so this is interesting. So the lens I'm seeing this through is your um, uh, presence on Twitter. But I would describe you as focused, and I think that as you engage us in public conversation through Twitter, I see you as really being able to drill down on several things. It is very clear what you care about 
and it's very clear that you're serious about it so that you will focus in on this issue, whether it is anti-racism, um, whether it is about communal connection, right, and being connected to the, uh, to the town that you moved to, um, or loving your kids and raising your boys well. Now, you know, I think people have described me as serious in the past, and I actually feel a lot like you in terms of that silliness. I'd like to surprise you with my humor and be unexpected and be in ways that you didn't, yeah, you didn't see coming. <laughs> so I, I think that I think that there might be um, some kinship there, but yeah, the way that the way that I have observed you um, as we've interacted online is, yeah, I would actually I would actually use that word serious because you can lock in and it's your, what you care about is very clear. Mm. And I think that's a great thing to see personally. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's neat. I mean, you should see all the tweets that I delete though, John. Like those are just. <laughs> <laughs> well, your sense of humor is very present online. And I actually, um, this is not a, a, a widespread like compliment. Like I do get a, a real kick out of the jokes that you make and, um, the way that you frame yourself and that you're not afraid to be self-deprecating or, you know, admit if you're struggling in something or, you know, you've got, again, like you said, your teenage boys will like make a comment here or there that uh, will put you in your place or, uh, or put you in a place, I should say, put you in a place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think that's really cool. I, I want to, uh, what I ask my guests is uh, where did we meet? I, I rarely remember. Um, I feel like we met on Twitter and I, you, we started engaging in each other's Twitter feeds, if I recall. And then I've, which happens a lot, but then I noticed that you were engaging with people I knew in real life. And then I was like, that's what made me start paying attention more. Cause I noticed you engaged, I think with Rose Ingrid and with Drew. And I was like, Hey, I know those people, you know, hmm. and it was kind of that fun. Like we know the same people and yeah. they're cool people like i love those people and so you must be a pretty cool guy so that's my memory am i set accurate so i got i got the cosine <laughs> you got the cosine <laughs> good yeah like i said like i can say i can definitely say twitter and then that's about it like once i uh, you know a lot a lot of my friends i don't remember um the exact moment and uh and i i tried i tried digging into some of our twitter history and couldn't land on like a uh, initial spot where where we connected. I do remember some conversation about St. Catharines. I remember some conversation about church and probably maybe inviting you to church or something like that. You know, like, oh, well, you know, you maybe haven't found a church community that um, you dig yet. And I'm like, well, I like ours. And so if you feel disconnected, like you you, know, you want to make the drive to Milton, you could do that. That's okay. that's the only thing I remember. Huh. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, was that maybe after I moved to Kitchener? I, I've only lived here for a short time. Oh no, but even in St. Catharines, yeah, I was definitely struggling with churches there. You moved to KW, like my favorite place. Uh, I, I, I would to. move back there tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you like it. Love it. Um, but you moved like uh, during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had planned to move, like we had bought the house before the pandemic started and we weren't going to move till the summer. But then with the pandemic, we ended up moving the kids early since they were online anyway. 
yeah, I'd been commuting from St. Catharines to Kitchener for about eight months before we moved. So I was very happy to <laughs> put an end to that only to work in the basement office from the foreseeable right. future. <laughs> what was it like trying to integrate into a new uh, town and community during the pandemic? Oh, well, I've moved a lot in my life. I've lived a lot of different places. So I consider myself pretty good at ingratiating myself to the locals. Um, I'm not shy. Um, I, I I noticed in St. Catharines, people were really uh, like, like I said, it was a small town and everyone knew each other. Like everyone was related or they knew someone who knew, like it was kind of, it was, it was a little scary. And they were very <laughs> insular and they weren't very good at including outsiders. So we struggled there a bit because we felt like just perpetual outsiders, like we're never going to belong here. And then moving here, I thought it was a totally different response. Like we've met a lot of people here who are also transplants. And so that helps a ton. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we got so lucky, John, we landed in a neighborhood with just incredible humans who embraced us. And then because of the pandemic and the kids outside, we, it was like we were camping all summer because we just lived on our street with our neighbors and then we'd go in to sleep. But it was an incredible uh, summer. And and now that the weather's cold and we're on lockdown again, we don't see them as much, but, but our neighborhood yeah. great. Had you experienced community like that before? Not in St. Catharines. No, right. We lived in a kind of an elder community. There weren't a lot of a ton of young people or kids. Um, we did have a community like that in Denver. I mean, we've always been the kind of people who prefer a community like that. Like we're, mm -hmm. you know, you have dinner with your neighbors at least once a week because you know, why? Why do we need to make two kitchens messy? Like, I, I've always loved that kind of community, and we're we're super grateful to have found that again. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Some some friends of mine uh, have had communities like that. I've been invited into them. Like in Hamilton, there's some neighborhoods. Uh, one of the neighborhoods I um, I visited, uh, where my friend lived, they would have boy four or five years of block parties, um, where they would invite musicians and they would play from a porch, and the whole neighborhood would come. Uh. Right, and you know the 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 year I played there, they ha they had activities for the kids on the on the lawn and then you know the street shut down um, it's a tiny street but there's all kinds of lawn chairs and people out and then across the street a door opens and this guy like steps out very purposefully and with very big strides because he was wearing clown pants <laughs> and as he emerges from the house you see that he is dressed completely as a clown with big baggy colorful clothes and i don't remember the hair if there was some kind of hat but he spent an hour making balloon animals for all the kids while the concert was going on that's awesome <laughs> i'll remember those i have been blessed to play just a couple of block parties i i love more i i'm my street is deathly quiet um and i'm at the point now where i I don't know what I want in terms of a community. Mm. Uh, as an introvert, it's nice to have space. Um, but that idea of, like you said, this summer, your, this last past summer, spending time outside, that sounds amazing. Well, yeah, and it's not even the summer. Like, are there kids from four to 
17 who are running around all the yards like constantly like playing in my front yard <laughs> having sword fights like it's in my driveway like it's playing laser tag at night even in the winter it's 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 so beautiful like and it kind of is an introvert's dream because i don't have to engage if i come inside right like right. pandemic is is nice in that way because we can all be together outside but as soon as i need my space i can i can huh. retract yeah Man, that's really neat. It's, it's hard to find, though. I mean, we've just, we like I said, I'm really grateful we found it twice in our life. And this is the second time. And really, really grateful. Hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I, I wanted you to come on and have this conversation because I've been uh, uh, observing your online presence. And like I said, being able to speak very clearly and directly on anti-racist work. And I would just like to hear from you sort of the process and like what you've been doing now, how you got into it, where, you know, where are you now? Because it's always sort of a f an evolving process mm -hmm. of how we speak into the work, uh, look after each other, take care of ourselves because of the resistance that's there. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you let, uh, yeah. So my question is, what are you doing in anti-racist work right now? But I'm also curious about your sort of evolution into, into the work. Sure. Well, I was, I was a high school English teacher for about 15 years in the U S hey. basketball coach, by the way, we have a lot. In common. Oh, we do have a lot in common. Yeah. I'm quite tall, John. You are. I'm, I'm actually tall. <laughs> Did you play when you were younger? I yeah, I played at um, Calvin College in 1992 on the JV team. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was your position? What position did you play? Well, in high school, I played um, like a forward. And then when I went to Calvin, I because I, I was pretty tall in high school. But then when you get to the, the higher leagues, you know, you're like, oh, you're actually not that tall compared to. Yeah. And so then I got pushed to a shooting guard. I had a nice outside shot for a while. I still okay. have to I still have to play against my kids at once a year and, and remind them that I can just let them know. Yeah, just let them know. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. <laughs> but it was during teaching that um, I think, you know, this probably goes back to that adjective I gave myself like unexpected I, I I just have never taken things at face value I've always questioned I'm I've I've always been a shit disturber hmm. and someone who just questions things and like why is this why is this what's going on what's the when Nadia Boltzweber you're I'm sure you're familiar with her she she says, yeah what's the thing under the thing Good. It's one of my favorite good. questions I feel like That's I've been line. asking that my whole life like what's the thing under the thing and so um, teaching, I got involved with a lot of, um, you would say NGOs or, or, you know, nonprofits that were doing different, they didn't call it anti-racist work back then, but they certainly were looking at how to support um, racialized kids. You know, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, they, they asked all kinds of questions that at the time seemed like the best answer, but in hindsight, it was like totally misguided. But I, I played like the white savior, John. I like I was the one I was the white woman who was like Michelle Pfeiffering my, you know, my kids. I was like good reference coach. Like I was totally like into that. I, I'll do it, you know, as, as a white woman, when you take those tough jobs of, you know, doing those low level essentials kids like you get rewarded for it. And, you know, it was like charity work almost. And I, I was, I was mm. totally into that, but I was also asking like, what's really going on here. And I I'll never forget one time 
my principal walked in and I was pretty proud of this class and the, the, the strides they were making. And we were talking out in the hall and the principal looked at me. He said, wow, I goes, I just, I guess I never realized that, you know, so many of the essentials kids are, um, are black and brown. And I looked at him and I was like, what, what rock have you been living under? Hmm. <laughs> like, how do you not know this? Like this was before they started disaggregating data, but it was like so obvious that it was the white kids who were in the AP advanced courses and it was the black and brown kids who were in the, the lower level courses. And he just was acting like it was the first time he ever noticed that. And I was like, what, how, how have you not started to think about that? I was really perturbed, but I, I just started asking and pushing against that question um, pretty hard. And, you know, I, I went to conferences, like how to teach black kids. I went to, I read, you know, read a lot of books and I got involved with an organization called facing history and ourselves. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They No, I'm not. Yeah, uh, they're low, they actually have an arm in Toronto too. They do some really great work. And they they kind of gave me a, a real push on my my journey, my equity journey initially. But then when we moved here and so in that 10, 15 years, I did a master's degree in curriculum and in, um, instruction. And then when we moved here, I had the chance to do a PhD and I thought, okay, now I get to dig into that question. What is the thing under the thing? And, and basically uh, that was the question. I was like, how come white people can't do anti-racism? Like what is going on here? How can we possibly engage white people in anti-racism work? And that was my, that was my big question for, you know, it took me six years to finish that PhD, but that was the question I explored for all that time. And, and, Boy, did that open up a ton of conversations with so many interesting people throughout Ontario. And through that work, and partly because I, um, I, love, I love to bring people together. I, I, I wasn't really made to be an academic because it's, it's such solitary work, which is partly why I didn't stay in the academy. I love working in the school board with people better than I like okay. alone and writing part of, you know, my, my activism is like, we got to bring people together to talk about this. And so I, I had gone to the white privilege conference in the U S uh, in, this is probably about eight years, seven, eight years ago. And I, I got to know the director and that's, that's a different story, John, that's an interesting story, but um, we can come back to that later. If you want to talk about people who resist this work, <laughs> but okay. Um, Anyway, he and I uh, started conspiring about bringing the conference to Canada. And then I was able to connect him to some of these key people at Brock and, and get the conference to Canada. So Brock University hosted the first ever white privilege symposium, like a mini conference at Brock. So it was, hell, I was helping plan that and organize that and find, you know, and I was reaching out to people to speak. And there was a part of me, even though I had sort of wasn't really a big part of the church at that time, I still... I still love so many people in the church. Like I was kind of had one foot in, but was really mad at the church for a while. And, um, but I called my, my home root church is the Christian reform denomination. And I called Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm tall. Remember? It's like, <laughs> I called, um, their head office and I was like, I got in touch with the race relations coordinator. I said, hey, we're hosting this conference, white privilege conference. I think this is a conversation that churches need to be having. And she and I 
talked for probably you know one to two hours that first conversation just finding so many points of connection and um her name is bernadette arthur you may know her yeah so that was the beginning of a really neat relationship um because she was doing some real pushing in the church and i was kind of out of the church but doing pushing in the academy and then we we started to put our heads together and started to dream and conspire and talk and plan and oh she's she's become a dear dear friend um for the past seven years and really pushed me in, in my journey in kind of back into faith spaces which i'd sort of given up on mm. i was kind of like well they're not even they don't even want gay people in the church like they're not ready for this conversation yeah it, it, she gave me a lot of hope in, in the work in the church and had these amazing ideas for um having conversations with white people like white caucus work in the church she came up with this notion of kenosis which is the, the biblical term for they use um, in philippians that describes jesus um like emptying himself for the sake of of others mm -hmm. kenosis she calls these groups kenosis and they're groups of white people who come together to unpack what it means to be white in a white supremacist society. And she helped train uh, several of us, about five of us who were the facilitators for the initial iteration of this Kenosis community groups. And um, that work has, has snowballed over the past five years or so. And um, so I still, that's my, that's my main volunteer work that I do. I, I'm one of the leaders for the Kenosis work and we have um many people now who've done like a, a community group or or a book discussion group um we have monthly meetings where we we host with um for white people who are trying to learn and unpack and and basically you know we had a lot of interest after george floyd and the murder of george floyd a lot of white people going what can we do and and you know i, I try to listen really carefully to to leaders of color and the the answer i hear more and more is, as a white person is collect your people <laughs> like yeah we need you to work on white people like we're we don't want to do that work like that's your work and and they're taking that really seriously and uh continue to uh put a lot of love into these kenosis community groups that is fascinating all right i have 17 questions <laughs> yeah I, bet, I don't i don't uh tweet about that you know that no. that might be a piece that you didn't even know because i I, I maybe disguise that a little bit, but I don't, yeah, I don't talk a lot about that online. If I'm, I'm trying to remember because there's so much of last summer that was a blur, but I do recall that um, some people I know, or, or I would say some people that we know, had you into a space to discuss, right? Like that, like white folks dealing with white supremacy. Yeah. When I when I I saw that you were going to I was like oh you do that too mm. okay okay that's cool because I've seen that a lot um, but I see in a lot of my discourse with people in my church community or if, I would say let's say faith community not just to single out my home church uh, in in teaching with my colleagues there is I don't know if impotence is the right word but there's a, a real fight of like helplessness mm -hmm. like we're moved and. Uh, you know, and, and we're aware of what's happening now. And now we need to build our knowledge in ways that we have never have before. Yeah. And even then, they can feel stuck. 
because it's it's kind of like that um Washington Post article that came out last year like when when incidents of like when racist incidents occur white people join book clubs yeah <laughs> right it's like where they they feel helpless like where do we go from here so what kind of people are gathering in these groups like mm -hmm. i'm thinking about demographics i'm thinking about education level i'm thinking about occupations that kind of stuff like what what spectrum are you seeing Ooh, it's it's um, all over the place. I mean, we're we're pretty intentionally uh, Christian, so we we a lot of the and it's only word of mouth, and so it's grown mostly through churches and people who are in leadership positions in churches, um, but also Christian universities and um, ministry positions, like people who do like Christian nonprofit type work. But we also have a lot of teachers and. Uh, with people kind of all across the spectrum. That's encouraging to me to hear. And when you mention um, ministry leaders and people, people in Christian ministry, I would imagine that there are probably people that are bumping into points of pride mm -hmm. within themselves of what they thought they knew or the position that they've been placed in their community. Yeah versus what they actually know about this particular work or the voices of marginalized groups. Am I right? So true. And that's, that's such a, a, st a sticking point for so many people, but yeah, that pride is a tough barrier and, and, and pastors absolutely, I think have a, a tough time wrapping their heads around like all, all that they need to kind of unlearn um, and, and renegotiate because of what they have been taught. And um, I, I most recently have been studying um, William Je Jennings, Dr. Jennings from Duke University, who just okay. wrote a book called After Whiteness. And he, he talks about, you know, white, whiteness was born in the belly of Christianity. And he yeah. implicates the church and, and everything he says, I, I just go, yep, yep, yep. I mean, our, our churches are the most segregated hour. Um, or Christian schools are, are extremely segregated. And, and I, unfortunately, a lot of people are late to this conversation and partly because that, that pride, like how could we possibly have gotten this wrong? It's just in this fear of, of engaging in this work and admitting that yeah. perhaps we did have, we have gotten this wrong. Maybe we need to have that posture of humility and learning. So the spaces that we try to create are, are spaces of a lot of honesty and vulnerability and um, listening and <laughs> tough truth telling. And we have some, some pretty serious values we stick to um, in terms of like, yeah, having some tough conversations and digging deep. But we're not in a book club or an advocacy group, but we really do try to push people to advocacy in their own spaces. And, and connect yeah. people to their local, because especially since the pandemic, we're, we have people from all over North America in our groups. Um, I shouldn't say that like we have a million people in the US, like we have a few people who aren't Canadian. So it just sounds mm -hmm. really neat to say international, but, but it's yeah. growing. I mean, people are looking for a space. Like one of the comments we hear repeatedly from white people is, I don't have these conversations with any other white people. This is the one yeah. space I can go and have these really honest conversations about 
how I am messing up as a white person and how I want to do better, but I can't get it right. And I know that's the perfectionism because that's what white supremacy tells us to do is be perfect. And how do I unpack that? It's like, it's almost like therapy for white people who are trying to, to do anti-racism yeah. work. If that makes sense. Which uh, just seems so necessary when, you know, when you talk about uh, church groups or communities that are sort of late to the game, it's one of those things that is this additional level of processing for me that I I bring to the table even within my marriage because I'm because my wife is um, uh, white bodied from England, and when we think about moving or the next adventure, part of my analysis has to be the level of safety for my own children. And we could say, yes, I want my son or daughter to go to a Christian school, but I need to know the le that level of safety that's b built into the structure of the school that they might not even recognize. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's this other level of analysis that sometimes produces fear, sometimes produces frustration, uh, sometimes produces anger that I have I have to do this. Um, you know, like anything, we, we want to ensure safety for our children, um, although we know that they will, will never be fully protected and we have to teach them how to process pain and process the things that happen to mm -hmm. them. You know, you're, you're ahead of the game uh, than me as a, as a parent, uh, but having, you know, George Floyd's murder and the situations that followed um, have led to some interesting conversations at home. Like um, and I have no, I still don't feel like I have a real sense of what my kids think of it all. Mm -hmm. I could just assess whether they feel safe right now. Uh, and it frustrates me that, um, you know, the larger, you know, the larger body of people that call themselves Christians can't guarantee that safety for mm -hmm. my kids. Yeah. So I'm curious about the mood of these groups. Any space I walk into where I'm gonna talk about um, justice in any way, I am steeled for defensiveness. Mm. And that can look in a number, it can manifest itself in a number of different ways. Mm. Do you have folks walking into this group eager to learn or are there arms folded folks ready to push mm. back? Well, <laughs> I don't think people like that stick around very long. I think we've had a few that come at the beginning and then say, mm. nope, can't do this because we we try to model and invite a lot of vulnerability right off the bat because there's just no doing this work with any pride, as you said. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've seen a few people come with their arms crossed and then they, they don't come back very often because it's just, they're not ready. It's too much. They're feeling too too defensive. And other people, we really try to really invite people to name that and to really lean into that. And like, what are, we do a right. lot of body awareness and a lot of like, we work a lot with like Resma Menachem's, um, my grandmother's hands um, and somatic work. Oh, okay. It's a great book okay. about, um, highly recommend it's racialized trauma and the pathway to healing and mending, mending our minds and bodies, Resma Menachem and his his attention to um, how much white people need to pay attention to our bodies and the way that we em enact white body supremacy, he calls it. And so we do a lot of um, somatic thinking about how, how these conversations are landing in our body. So we just try to name a lot of those feelings, you know, 
how are you like where does he where do you feel defensiveness and we, we try to just really bring mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff out into the open and normalize it so that people don't run away from that but go okay i'm feeling defensive uh because i don't like this accusation that that white people are oppressive but let's let's go there then let's stay in this pain Let's not run away from it because that's what we are hearing we need to do as white people is to enter into the pain and stay there and, and really listen to that and learn from it. But instead, what so many you know, white people historically have done is said, you know, deny, deny, push away, defend, rebuke, um, run away. And that's just created, you know, generations of trauma in white people who who are lack the capacity and the resilience to engage in real needed conversation about about race and racism so we hmm. try to name that from the outset and and try to like just invite people to to get ready for that and and kind of predict and you know say from the, the get-go like this is going to be tough work it's going to be messy it's right. going to raise your blood pressure uh, but we're going to go there anyway and here's why because we really believe that it is part of our, our calling as Christians to, it's part of reconciliation. It's part of the work of, of, that Jesus is calling us to do, this work of reconciliation. And so we feel that this is um, part of our mandate as people of faith, is to go to these tough places and to look deeply at the ways we ourselves are implicated in a system of white supremacy that privileges skin like mine. Like mm -hmm. we have been upholding that without knowing it and and what does that look like and how can we actually kind of drill down and it gets tough because we have to look at our own families and how they've taught us and trained yeah. us to uphold white supremacy we have to look at you know our own patterns and the ways that in our histories of the ways that we've perpetuated it but we we just continue to try to ask people to go there and to, so it gets it gets it gets messy it gets pretty emotional um but when people are willing to take that risk, it also gets pretty intimate. And um, people who stick around get pretty close because you tend to show people those raw parts of yourself. They're either going to turn away from you and reject you or become your best friends, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so the people who stick around are, I would say, are, are, are pretty, pretty tight. I mean, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Um, it sounds like... Yeah, that's deep work. That's deep work. Let's let's stay with defensiveness for a second. And and you had mentioned that um, the white privilege uh, conference that you had been working with, and um, uh, a story that emerges from there around the idea of defensiveness. And um, uh, would you be able to share that story? Mm, yeah. So um, so this is about seven years ago, and um, and actually this connects a little bit with what I was thinking of earlier, the other, the other defensiveness we're seeing currently in Christian churches is this defensiveness against like, um, critical race theory. Yeah. 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 It's really yeah. So this kind of connects to that because, and I, I think a lot of that comes down from Christian churches, like looking side eyed at what the public sphere is doing, you know? Oh, I don't know. Right. That's not, that's not, you know, maybe Christian enough. And so, this is this is the beginning of that. So, right, you know, seven years ago, I'm in the U.S. I'm speaking at a white privilege conference, and um, the conference was infiltrated by people who wanted to expose, like, wanted to write nasty stuff about it. So, it had snuck into the okay. conference, wrote an article, um, quoting me, 
out of context, out of really important nuance, like took some of my most incendiary statements and, and wrote them in this article, like purposely trying to make this conference look like a sham. And this is, this is ridiculous. White people are just like hating white people and white people are, are gosh, I don't remember his main points, but you can, you can imagine just really trying. Sure. And so this article then went viral and it got picked up by Fox News and Breitbart, which at that point, nobody knew what Breitbart was, but most people now hmm. um, got picked up by, you know, a lot of these right wing. So I started getting, and the reason I found out about it was because I started getting these really weird emails, like death threats, like, how dare you? And, hmm. and your mother should have had an abortion. And like, I'll, I was like, where the hell are these emails coming from? And I, I, eventually connected the dots and figured it out and then was able to find the articles and the thousands and thousands of comments that were it really beaten me up it was really it was pretty scary because you just don't know how serious some of these people are and if they're going to try to find you but it, because of that i connected to the director of the conference eddie moore dr eddie moore and then he and i did a, a radio show together and tried to talk about the breach like here's what happened because it wasn't just me there were two other speakers who were quoted as well in different articles and so we tried to identify like these people and explain what happened do a little damage control but but i'll never forget john after that whole issue eddie and i were talking one time and he said and i think he knew he knew i was pretty new to like publicly doing this work and he said are you gonna be here are you gonna stick around you're going to do this. You're going to be here in the next five, 10 years. And I, I realized at that moment that I had a choice. I could leave. Hmm. I, you know, I could, I could, I, this could be, you know, too scary, too much, too close to home, too personal. And I, I could have left, but and that was a very, that was a, a really important conversation for me because even that realization that this is a choice for white people to do this work. And this man is asking me to make the choice right now. Like there was a, there was a commitment there that I made to Eddie and to, and to you know, to, to my own integrity. Like, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to let these, these, these white, you know, right wing people scare me. Like I'm going to continue to do this work. And, um, and Eddie became like a huge supporter and, and just was cheering me on the whole way of doing my PhD. And, you know, we still connect and he still brings stuff to Canada and, um, yeah, he's doing amazing work. And, uh, that's a great story, but it it does underscore the risk. And I, I was just actually speaking about this on the weekend, um, in a sermon I was preaching about what it costs to stand up like this. For you, what I'm curious about is, you know, earlier on you discussed this, like, you, you know, you used the Dangerous Minds reference, right, from your teaching <laughs> days and your Michelle Pfeiffering the way through. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to think if I could say, I'm not sure how far along you can get in this, how, how far along you can get along get on in this game, while still having that white savior complex. That like I I would think that to be do it authentically and to be welcomed by communities of color, um and other activists like that's got to be pretty that's got to be checked at some point. So where was the adjustment for you? Um, I think, you know. I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question correctly or in the way you're asking it. Um, but for me, so much of the work was listening carefully to um, the people of color closest to me 
and, and asking the question repeatedly of how can I leverage my whiteness, my white body, my academia okay. to, to, for, for the, the anti-racism work, like what, what do I need to do? And, and listening, listening, listening to, to the answer to that, um, you know, slowly, like, like hearing some things and being like, what? No, that doesn't make sense. But really trying to ask that question with every author I read and every person I met and, and trying to, to lean into that question as hard as I could. Um, and again, I, I think if I'm hearing your question, right, like there is like that white savior component to that. Like <laughs> I want to, I want to do something. I want to be the savior. And yet, and yet the question more and more was like, get out of the way, like, like become small, like, like it, this isn't, this isn't about you. Like, this is about you working with white people. That's kind of the unsexy work. Like, this isn't about you taking the, mm -hmm. taking the podium. This is about you getting small and getting out of the way. And, um, you know, doing some of that, that, that unsexy business, which was so contradictory to, you know, the white savior who wants the, the pedestal and the, the, the name and the article and the money and the book deal. And, you know, um, because it required, like, it actually put me in a different trajectory, if you will, like realizing like this, this isn't about me. This is about me modeling to other white people, how to, how to be really humble and how to be really honest and how to really pull back, if you will. Yeah, no, you definitely answered that, that question because the idea of like what it costs is it sounds like it costs your reputation for people that would disagree uh, and push back in ways that you've experienced. Uh, and then also um, it costs that, that opportunity to be the hero, right? They're not going to, yeah. they're not going to make a movie about you. Uh, this right. episode, this episode might be called unsexy business. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> And then that's a fun part of my day job too, is like just one of the reasons I took this job is because I get to do more of that behind the scenes stuff and, and really push and, and elevate, you know, decision makers and work to, you know, do some of that, that unsexy hard work. And how, and how, um, oh man, and how connected to uh, the faith, right? where we are asked to be small, we are asked to be last, we are asked to decrease mm -hmm. so that Christ mm -hmm. can increase. Um, those those things should be connected, and I guess it's part of the unsexy business to make those connections for people that have not been conditioned to yeah. see it. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Yeah. Yeah, kind of back to Ted Lasso, like. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Dr. Kim uh, for a few more stories. special guest dr kim red radersma yes i got it wow okay so um so on the podcast what i usually do is have people 
brings brings stories. In this case, I had questions for you, which has brought forward some um, some really powerful stories. I think they'll be meaningful for many. Um, and then it's my job to bring a story. Now, I uh, I would like to forfeit my time, um, but I would like to lead in with this conversation, and it is hmm, it is more emotional than I'd expect, and uh, does force me to tap into the emotions that I was experiencing um, uh, last summer. Now, uh, I, I mentioned earlier this weekend, I was, uh, I was guest preaching at a Presbyterian church in Milton and I was, uh, I, br- I brought out a sermon that I've done before, um, and talk about the, the times during the Ferguson uprising where I would go through this, you know, in August in 2014, reading and crying and reading and crying and watching Twitter and seeing videos from the ground. And then the next day on the news, seeing no representation of what we were seeing from the ground. Like just, it's just like, it could be two different things. And that disconnect would make me cry. And I, I was, you know, I was preaching from there this weekend while mentally and emotionally in a place of June, July, August of 2020 and having the same, I was so angry and, and, you know, and the pandemic was already season of grief as I could describe it. And I, you know, spent my creative time. I, I just started doing some writing again, publicly where it's like I am not good with grief and I'm not good with anger and I got to deal with these things in this season in these contexts but one of the things that did was sometimes unintentionally put me at odds with people within my own community which you know which in Milton is you know uh highly Caucasian um although it is diversifying I would hear things from people that would catch me off guard that sort of would, would lead led me to believe that their defensiveness about what was happening means that they didn't really believe the stories, the narratives that were being shared. And so um, we could talk about critical race theory. We could talk about looting. We could talk about all lives matter. We could talk about all, about uh, affirmative action. We could talk about anything except what was being shared from the people raising their fists and raising their voices. I was so angry. And I, at the same way that I saw the disconnect between the a mainstream media and uh, reports from the ground during Ferguson, I was seeing disconnects in my own community and going, I feel more lost now mm-hmm. because I don't think that you're with me and I've been with you for X number of years. And I thought to myself, in this season, I don't have many friends Mm. because I don't know who's going to say something that's going to make me go, pardon? Mm. And it was like, it was coming from everywhere. But within that time, I had this question and I needed to talk to people who were putting in the work to get their people. I was feeling very vulnerable. I knew that if I was going to keep having this conversation publicly or bring it to church or whatever, I was going to need people to get my back. 
And, you know, being multi-ethnic, growing up in, and being in a lot of, um, you know, Caucasian spaces, white-bodied spaces, I knew, uh, like, you know, it's, I don't know if it's code switching, but I know how to speak a few languages culturally. And so I know how to engage you. And what I realized is that not as many people knew how to engage me, mm-hmm. but I was like, I need you. And I don't know how to move this grief out of the way and move this anger out of the way to vulnerably say, I actually need you not only to listen, but to engage and start discussing with me and your people how we're going to make these spaces better. Whether that's my church, my town, my school, my school board, whatever it is, it was, it was, a, it was such a hard place to be to feel that vulnerability and and maybe not know who to take it to to within my friend group. There was a point where I just had to say, I'm not sure who's safe. But it did, but it led me to this question around anti-racist work when we have people of color and we have white bodied people, I asked the question, what do we need from each other? Mm. Because I, maybe it's the multi-ethnic in me. Maybe it's both sides that exist within me. I want that harmony. I want us to work together. I actually grieve the disunity as much as um, uh, the violence and the inequity. Like, if we're not united, if we're not working together, then how are we going to fix the problem? So there's got to be points of connection. So... I don't know. This is a question I don't know the answer to, but I wanted to share my heart with you to at least so you could see where I was I was coming from. And I'm not sure what you're going to say, but I've been thinking about this a lot. What do we need from each other in this anti-racist work? That's a great question, John. A couple of things come to mind for me. Um, One of the things that I um have been challenged about the most when it comes to how white people and white Christians in particular uphold white supremacy is our lack of um truth telling. Okay. Um, a lot of white people are, have been socialized to be really passive aggressive. And it's very common in white culture, in white school boards, in white churches to be passive aggressive because it's thought to be kind and nice. Um, let's hint around the problem. Let's talk behind people's backs. Let's just be silent and give the hint and hope they get it. Um, white people are masters at, at passive aggressive behavior. And what that has done is it has caused a lot of us to be terrified of conflict because we haven't been taught how to have handle conflict. Well, a lot of white people haven't been taught how to, you know, enter into conflict. And yet the reality is like, if we don't enter into conflict, if we avoid conflict, we avoid depth. And right. we avoid, if we avoid conflict, we avoid the truth. And and what needs to happen, I think, is we need to have truth-telling conversations with each other where we can listen to each other without that defensiveness, without that, that but but I didn't mean it, but I didn't mean it, without the the justification, but with an authentic listening to to change, to grow and to be transformed. But so much of whiteness has made white people like, um, hasn't given us the capacity to have those conversations yet. So I, I think the first thing we need is to build that skill of, of truth telling and, and to build that skill of listening um, and to be able to hear the truth 
not not just to speak the truth, but to be able to listen to the truth and to to take that and to sit with that. And again, not run away from that, but but actually to to enter into that pain together. But until we can build the capacity, I think this is part of what Kenosis work is doing is we're trying to build people's capacity to have those conversations. Um, because until we have that that skill, that muscle, like we're not going to get very far. We're going to continue avoiding and being afraid of hurting and and not trusting each other and and just you know have all these these spirals that that are going in the wrong direction. Because I I, I don't know the full answer to your question, but I do know that it has to start with some hard truth telling. Because I think what what we what what you would say, you know, what people of color need from white people, we're not ready to hear that yet. And we've got some work to do to be prepared to hear that. Yeah. I remember um, I had a, I had a conversation uh, with a woman in my community and there's some people of color in her family. I think that's, I think that's a safe way to say it. And, I, and she felt really motivated. She felt really motivated to do some learning. And it was interesting because in approaching me for a conversation, the first thing I did was recoil. Mm. No, 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 we're not doing this and we're not doing it now when I don't know what's coming. Um, I don't know your response. I don't know how to prepare for it. Um, and then once I could adjust to the notion that um, this conversation was desired, then I could sort of bring it up at um, a little bit of uh, being a little bit more removed and a little bit of a safer space. And what was interesting was I certainly didn't have all my remarks prepared, um, but was able to assess the situation that there was enough safety to tell the truth about how, how I, how I view things. And I was really amazed that it was surprising for them, mm. for her. And I think it's interesting because I'm like, I'm putting myself there and thinking about maybe more than I ever do, like how I was feeling in my body at that moment. Mm -hmm. It's so relieving when they don't immediately argue. <laughs> what a low bar. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it because I hadn't thought about that. I'm just actually like, yeah, I am relieved. Okay, I can say something and we're not going to go 12 places with it. And it's, it's within my own like humility. I'm not, you know, demanding no conversation or, or no processing. I'm not demanding that I'm right. Um, I'm asking, I'm asking to share perspective. So in this conversation, we, it, what, so yeah, this conversation, I still recognize as emotional because I cannot remember all of the details, but we did have this conversation about like what we need from each other. And I think it was, I think we sort of moved along the lines of, you know, her saying that I want to learn and me saying like, I need you to listen, but it is also this next level where it's like you are going to be able to go places that I can't and might have access to more people that need to hear this truth 
it's and what I didn't say is like it's going to cost you something. Because <laughs> yeah. that's a hard thing to tell people. Yeah. Right. I don't know. You know those those kinds of conversations don't have happen often. So I'm still not sure what I think about it. Mm. Um, I'm watching some people close to me engage their own journey, learning journey, um, recognizing that they have been been blind to this, mm -hmm. and sort of George Floyd's murder was uh, a point of awakening. Yeah. And what's been y unique is that what's been unique is what I didn't recognize is that my reaction is is varied depending on all these different factors. Uh, I might not have time to engage with you mm -hmm. on this thing today. I might see you tweet out or take an Instagram picture of a resource that you that you uh, gained and you're trying to learn from, and I don't really think it's that effective of a resource. But I might not have time to. But I'm just I'm just happy that you're trying and that you move along the way, and it's not, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? So I don't have to check you on everything. It's the authentic, authentic relationship that makes it hard, but I think is so required where you can tell me what's going on with you and I can respond. I'm desperate for those kinds of cross-cultural conversations, mm -hmm. but they do, but they are rare, I think, for the defensiveness, for the humility, for, or the lack of humility, for the pride, for the things that we all stumble on the same way that uh, as a man, um, I'm going to feel that same way if I if I hear a woman check me on something or if I hear a woman discuss something about that level of behavior under under a patriarchal lens and I go, shoot, I did that. I think we both need humility, but that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> if, I, if I can offer something else to think Please. about, I think I think the other thing um, that is needed and it, it kind of relates to you, you're, you, you keep bringing up cost. Um, is is for white people to realize that white supremacy harms us too, right. and, and and that's something that I, I think it takes a, um, a lot of steps for for white people to to get there because so much, especially in the Christian spaces, so much of racism work has been posited uh, uh, posited as charity work and helping the other and let's help racialized people survive and and feel like they belong in our you know. Um, toxic mine. I, I use this metaphor a lot of the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you know, the mm -hmm. canary that dropped down into the, the coal mine is the original carbon monoxide detector. Um, the notion that, you know, so often when we do anti-racism work, we think about putting the gas mask on the canary. Like, how do we help the, the people survive? How do we help racialized kids survive our schools and thrive in our schools? How do we help racialized um, churchgoers to, to feel like they belong? Instead, I think the conversation should be about the toxic mine of whiteness and mm -hmm. white supremacy that is killing all of us. But white people have been lied to to believe that we're you know better off, which in many ways we are. We're better off economically, politically, advantages, all of that. But I don't even like the word white privilege because we're our, it's soul crushing for all of us and in this internalized superiority that white people are are socialized to believe they have is killing us too like like racism doesn't just hurt black people it actually is killing all of us mm -hmm. and until white people really wake up to see that white supremacy is 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 
so bad for every single person, I think until we see that, we don't engage in a way that is beyond charity. And right. to me, that's that's got to be part of, of the next step because we don't want white people engaging in anti-racism work in that charitable posture. We want white people to engage in anti-racism work because we have to save ourselves too. <laughs> we we need to save our families because my family has trauma around you know being slaveholders. And, and ignoring racism, like there's some trauma crap in there too that we've never dealt with. That's why we're passive aggressive because we don't like to look at the truth and admit that about ourselves. Like there's some nasty crap in my history, mm-hmm. and, and and there's a lot of garbage that white people need to expose in order for it to be healed. Um, that has to do with the way white supremacy has has socialized us. So I that's something I feel really strongly about that, that also needs to happen for white people to, to get in the game of, of anti-racism work is to see how much racism harms us too. That's, uh, I mean, that's really refreshing to hear that I think that will be illuminating for many. It reminds me of sort of being awakened to this work as a teacher and some of it is, you know, the journey that I've sort of chronicled through music around being multi-ethnic, trying to understand myself, uh, being, you know, visit like black presenting, uh, connected to a Guyanese and West Indian culture that, I, or sorry, attributing to a Guyanese and West Indian culture that I have no connection to uh, because of my my broken father. It's like that person walked into a school building and started teaching students in Oakville in South Oakville where I you know had youth group when I was a young young person I was a you know was a minority there and now I'm a minority in that school building and and a minority on my on my staff team and it wasn't till boy it's five or six years in when I sort of just did a quick Rolodex and thought, you know, there's not been another black body on staff in the school. And that's six years. That's a, that's a, a graduating class and a half that have, that has only had me as a role model or some, some kind of visible figure. Right. And I thought the damage, the damage there is, is to the students. That's what I thought where, you know, I could do my best, but you may have just seen me in the hallway and that's the only, uh, you know, person of color under authority for you or black, I should say black, I think specifically, being able to teach, being able to do anything to com- combat the issue of white supremacy. It makes me think, you know, if our school boards were concerned about that, I think their approach would be a lot different, recognizing that in four years of university the job the jobs that their parents might be able to connect them with um for being such you know well-connected um affluent young people um you know when are they in a position in, in their boardrooms or in their companies where they have authority and still hold unchecked opinions that would uphold white supremacy and and all they had was me. <laughs> That's when I started to get really serious about 
Wow. Equity work, at least at least where I where I was working, mm-hmm. but it wasn't much longer until there were networks. There was a network of racialized indigenous teachers that started to form, so we could have these conversations. And you realize that there's like one of me in every school. Yeah. So it was nice not to feel alone, but you know the the work we we realized was to have even to have any kind of visibility within the board um was was a challenge that i that isolation is real yeah that's a huge challenge still for school boards um something that my school board is is working quite a lot on we're thinking about that a lot and trying to address that in many different ways but it's a uphill battle battle for many years to start to address the disparity. Um, grossly underrepresented, black and indigenous teachers especially are just unethically underrepresented in positions of authority in schools as teachers. Overrepresented in positions of like facilities and cleaning supplies. Yeah. Underrepresented in the higher you get, the, the whiter it gets. You said that um, your work with uh, Bernadette and seeing some uh, Christians that were concerned about about these issues over time gave you some hope um do you have hope in the education in the in the educational sphere about where we're going i have to john otherwise i wouldn't be able to work with integrity true (laughs) i i work with an amazing team of people at my current job and um the creativity and the the problem solving and the strategic ways that we're creating, you know, trying to tackle this problem is, is, is hopeful. Absolutely. And we, obviously we don't have a critical mass yet, but we have enough leaders who are really getting behind this work in a, in a way that shows me that they're serious, that it's really, it's exciting. We're, we're kind of at a, we've got momentum right now and, and they're willing to ride the momentum and, and push in, in, in ways that, um, they're they're getting they're they're ready to they're getting ready to pay the cost because you realize the harder you push you know, this backlash this wave of resistance is is gaining momentum but i'm, I'm hopeful um that there is enough energy that we're going to continue to push for a while as soon as i don't see that john i couldn't i couldn't stay here like i i wouldn't be able to do the work i do if i didn't believe that there was hope and change well, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't stay here either because the winters are cold. Like, I just go back to Southern California. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> you said that uh, kindness inspires you, mm. and um, one of the things that, as I sort of watched you move online, uh, is that you wound up being observer of you wound up being inside a story that where you weren't uh where you weren't the protagonist um but were able to report on it in ways that got you in the paper yeah in your new town <laughs> tell yeah. tell us i i i call it the grocery store sto- story tell us tell me the grocery store story. i love how it connects to the kindness because it was totally that like my my 13 he was 13 at the time my youngest son we were checking out at the grocery store and we saw um, visibly um, homeless man with a backpack who was wa- walking out and we heard the kerfuffle and we look over and somebody had stopped him and asked him to open his backpack and mm. started to unpack the backpack, you know, fruit, vegetables. And we watched them pull things out of his backpack 
And the man started protesting saying, man, I'm just so hungry. I'm just so hungry. And the, the older man who was pulling things out, he said, we're going to feed you. We're, we're going to feed you. And, and I remember just thinking, wow, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that's a Ted Lasso moment. That's not what you would expect him to say. Like yeah. you think all the cops, arrest him, punish him, humiliate him. But instead, all he kept saying was, don't worry, man, we got you. We're going to feed you. We've got you. And, and I watched that and I was just kind of confused, like what, what he meant. And, and then we were out in the parking lot, unpacked the groceries, put the grocery cart away. And before we left, I watched that man leave the grocery store with a bag full of groceries. Hmm. And I just wept. I, it was just so beautiful yeah. that he could have been arrested and, and with good reason. And yet the, the manager, I learned later, it was the owner of the store who, instead of arresting him, gave him groceries and sent him on his way. <laughs> it was just one of those moments of, of you know unexplainable kindness and grace that that captured me and my son we we sat there for a while going holy cow what just happened and process that together and yeah hmm. yeah i still get emotional just retelling that story because it was it was a really powerful moment for us i've always seen generosity um as a beacon and its constant presence sharpens me to consider my own Mm. Uh, I I I won't I won't tell the long story here, but I it's much easier for me to open my wallet when I saw one of my good friends from university give twenty dollars away. Yeah. No, you know, knowing how poor you are in school, um, I just remember that every time I I try to be tight fisted. Yeah. What did you do? You sat there and you processed with your son. And then what did you do after that? I went home and and told my my partner and my other son what had happened. And my my partner, I should say, he he um he's he's very witty and and very uh, a clever man. And he he's the one who said you should tweet about that. <laughs> right. He's like, oh yeah, you're right. Like I should. And so I, I quickly wrote it like. Well, I remember standing in the entry. I wrote it really quickly. There's a typo and everything. And then um, like within a half an hour, it got like a hundred likes. And then it like it went up to think 10,000 likes and, and comments. And then the article, there were two different articles that were written about it and media. And it was, it was the viral moment that everyone thinks someday your, your, your post is going to go viral, <laughs> except it was, it was, it, it was at the beginning of the pandemic too. So I think it was just it was timely in the sense that people needed um, a glimpse of grace because we were getting, we were all getting beat up and we were all scared and you, you start to lose that hope in humanity. You know, it was that moment that, that gives you that hope. Like, okay, people can choose good. There is hope. We can do the right thing. And if that's possible, then, then it's gotta be possible for, for all of us in, in bigger ways. Um, how interesting that, you know, this, this viral moment for you is about highlighting the generosity and the kindness of somebody else, yeah. right? Not even for your own platform, like, but this is inspiring and we need to know this. Yeah. It, well, that was the fun part. Cause, um, he, he, he got, uh, I, I, I explained who it was like the, the store. I didn't know him at the time, but I explained the store 
And then um, eventually they reached out to me and I got to go in and meet him. And now we're, he's, we're friends. Like he knows my oh. kids. It's like when we go to the grocery store, he says, Hey Kim, Hey Dick. He talks to my kids. It's it's so sweet. And he's just a beautiful man. Like it, like it wasn't just a one-off thing for him. Like he, he wasn't doing it for, you know, he didn't realize people were watching. Like that's, that's his character and that's his consistent uh, presence. And so that became really evident, which made it even cooler because he's, oh. he, yeah. And he got so many donations because of that, which got, you know, he just pushed them all to the food banks and um, he was getting checks from people like from different, from the U S like writing him checks and he would just be donating everything. And it was, it was a pretty cool, cool ending. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, we definitely need more of that. Yeah. Dr. Kimmy. <laughs> if people want to connect with you, we can talk about that or if there's any resources that you want to highlight for people um, of, of great work to continue in their own anti-racist journey yeah, or both. Sure. What, what can you leave us with? Well, I do highly recommend the book I mentioned by Resma Manakem. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's called My Grandmother's Hands. Mm-hmm. Um, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Healing Our Minds and Bodies. That book has been transformational for me and for many other people. Um, and it's, he writes, he's a black social worker, but he writes the book in three parts, parts of it to white people, parts of it to, to black people and other people of color and parts of it to police. Okay. So he addresses three different audiences throughout the book, which makes it, it, it's, it's, it's really accessible for anyone. It's really well-written and beautifully, a beautiful challenge for the moment we're in. Yeah, I, I'll, that's probably, and there's so many books out there that are being recommended. His work and, oh boy, the work of, you know, Austin, Austin Channing Brown, her book yeah. um, is so, so good. Yeah. I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah. Um, that's great. For some people that are looking for a place to start, other people are looking for a place to continue. Um, uh, and you've given us a lot uh, of what is required mm-hmm. um, and that we would go in open eyes knowing that it will cost us something but um including our pride uh Mm -hmm. at some points our our need to be the hero Mm -hmm. um, but for this very important work oh i have to highlight somebody else locally because they're both american so can i also just recommend desmond cole's recent book the skin working and i'll tell you i had a conversation with desmond he came to the first white privilege conference at brock and when I was trying to convince Desmond to come, I, I pretty much stalked the guy online. I was like, <laughs> you're coming, you're coming, you're coming. And he finally, he finally, we had a phone conversation. We talked for quite a while and he, he commended me for, for my stalking behavior as a journalist. He said he was pretty impressed. <laughs> <laughs> but he said to me, uh, I, I said, I need you, really want you to come to the conference. And he said, Kim, I am so sick of talking to white people about racism. I really Mm -hmm. wish more white people would talk to white people about racism. And I said, I get it. I get it. I said, tell you what, I am, I'm trying to do that work of talking to white people. I said, but I need my black students to see a black man in a position that you're in. And and so can we, can we, can you do this for me? And I, I, you know, I'm going to continue to work on the angle of, of really helping white folks come along. That was a pretty pivotal conversation too. Local Canadian. Woo-hoo. Yes. So his, his recent book and work is in tremendous to follow him. I've learned a lot from him. That's really significant because I definitely identify with uh, Desmond in like micro and macro um, situations where I'm just like, Oh, okay. I'm not sure I want to, I'm not sure that I have the strength or capacity 
um, it is actually, I think, you know, maybe in moving towards answering my own question, we like, I think we need to strengthen each other. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Dr. Kim Rattersma, it's been a real treat. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great to be here, John. Appreciate it.